All right. How y'all doing? Good. Now, what? Hold on. It's supposed to be a Baptist church, right? Y'all supposed to be talking back to the preacher. How y'all doing? Good. Amen. Y'all supposed to say hello or good morning like you know Jesus this morning. So good to be with you guys and an honor to be introduced by our good friend uh, Chris and Tessa. Um, he's such a gracious brother, isn't he? He's got that smooth, quiet British thing going on. And, uh, you know, and, and he's very gracious because the one thing he didn't tell you is um, when I performed their wedding, the, the sort of preacher's worst nightmare happened. I, I had had the script written out and, you know, we just kind of cut and paste from previous ceremonies. And I had not changed the names in the script. And so I married two other people that, that day. They're very gracious <laughs> uh, in forgiving me that. Uh, it's an honor to be with you guys this morning. We, we, I feel like, I, I hope you feel like that uh, you are sort of a, a living miracle. I remember when I met Joey and Nathan, uh, they were down at Southeastern. And I uh, came by the room, I was at a conference, they wanted to come by the room and pick my brains a little bit about church planting. I had never planted a church, I didn't have anything for them to pick, but I was happy to, to talk with them, and uh, they were zealous to come to D.C. and to work and to plant the church, and this was really a dream. And here you sit, God in his matchless grace called the church that didn't exist into existence. And the gospel now is being preached here and as a witness for Jesus here that wasn't here just a few years ago. I hope you, I hope you never lose the sense of awe that God has done that wonderful thing. And these guys have been encouragements to us as pastors. You, you are regarded by us at ARC as kind of a big sister church. We have questions, uh, as I did a month or so ago. I said, hey, Joey, how'd you guys do this? And he sends me like eight documents. It's like, thanks. <laughs> you know, all the, all the policy, all the steps, everything we could ever want. And, uh, you have befriended our first church plan. And thank you for praying for Jeremy this morning, Mercy of Christ Fellowship, uh, in Northeast DC, a neighborhood much like our own, uh, in Anacostia and Southeast, Jeremy has drawn just tremendous encouragement from your pastors and from this church. And so it's an honor for me to be with you and to say thank you to you and to praise God with you. You've meant a great deal to us, though I'm meeting many of you for the first time. Uh, news of your faith uh, goes well beyond this auditorium. And I just praise God for you. Well, if you got your Bibles, we're going to be in the book of Colossians. In fact, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 4. Verse 7 to the end of the, the book there. And um, this is Paul's concluding section to the letter. He's sending out his final greetings and salutations. And uh, I'd asked Joey, I said, hey, what should I preach? And uh, Nathan had told me, you know, do something kind of mission related. I said, great. And I said, Joey, what's been preached recently? He sent me a list of things that have been preached. I thought, I know. I'll preach the final greetings in the letter. Surely no one has chosen that text. Uh, but in this text is rich instruction for us because God has called us to do something well beyond our individual capacity and well beyond the capacity of any local church. And that is to make disciples of every nation, to go to wherever people are and to proclaim the gospel and to bring people to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and to teach them to follow Jesus in the obedience that comes from faith, and to teach them to make other disciples as well. That's not something that we could do in our own strength. That's not something we can do as an individual church. That's something we need 
strong partnerships to do. And what I want us to see in this list of greetings is Paul's sort of partnership strategy. How Paul built the team that has continued to be effective even down to our day. How he laid the foundations of Christian mission and ministry um, in a particular way by assembling people uh, and forming those people into a, a partnership that resounds and reaches to all the nations. So let me offer a word of prayer for us, and then we'll dig into Colossians. Father, we give you praise and thanks for your matchless word. We thank you that your word is alive. We praise you, Lord, that uh, we not only read your word, but your word reads us. It searches us and and exposes and heals and binds up and instructs and gives wisdom. Your word is life. We live not by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. So we pray, speak to us, strengthen us, enrich us, and use us for your glory to spread your word to all the nations. Do this, we ask humbly. Do this for our joy and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, maybe it's helpful to take a few minutes to, a couple of minutes to think about the, the sort of terrain that Paul has covered in this letter. Uh, Colossians, if you were going to sort of put one banner, one slogan or phrase over the letter to summarize it, it might be the word supremacy. It might be the word the supremacy of Christ in all things. And in Colossians, we get some of the most exalted Christology, some of the highest sort of ideas about who Jesus is in all the Bible. So look with me at Colossians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Paul writes these words. He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's our Jesus. The one who is above all things and the maker of all things, who is the head of all things. And what did Jesus do? Look as Paul continues in verse 21. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul is saying, listen, we've got this great Jesus who's the head of all things and the the ruler of all things and the maker of all things, and not only that, the savior of all. For this same Jesus gave himself as a ransom for our sins. He was crucified because of our transgressions. He had no sins of his own. It was our sins that nailed him to the cross. And this God with all power demonstrated also all humility in laying his life down to redeem sinners. 
those of us who were once hostile toward God, doing evil things and likely calling it good, angering the God who made us and storing up wrath for the day of judgment. Jesus rescued by his sacrifice. And maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian. And Jesus is still rescuing. He's still reclaiming people from their errant ways, from their way of sin. And he's still making people to be reconciled with God, to be brought back into relationship with God through his sacrifice on the cross. And that can be you this morning. If you would confess your sins, repent of them, put your faith and your hope in this Jesus who is Lord of all and Savior of all who believe in him. And don't leave this morning until you do something that benefits your soul eternally. Talk to the Christian friend who brought you. Talk to the pastors and staff and the leadership here in the church. And you might know what it is to trust in Jesus and to be saved eternally. Because it's not just that he saves us now. Look over in chapter 2. In chapter 2 and verse 6, now we get to walk in Jesus. We get to live like him and to live for him. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. And it's not that the gospel is just some message back here, abstracted from the rest of our lives. The gospel is meant to shape and infuse and inform all of our lives. So that we read in verse 8 that Jesus is our philosophy. Notice, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. We're meant to be captive to Christ. He's our philosophy. He's our tradition. He's our teaching, which we embody and follow. And notice the marvel of verse 9. For in him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the rule or the head of all rule and authority. Christ is not only our philosophy, but he indwells us in all of his fullness and all of his greatness. He lives in us. And in chapter three, Paul tells us about our future. Chapter three, verse one. If then you have been raised with Christ and you have, if you have believed in him, seek the things that are above where Christ is Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's what Jesus is up to in our lives. That's what he's up to in the world. He's coming to the world, giving himself as a ransom. He's rescued us from our sin and judgment and he has commissioned us now to go and to preach this same message to, to others that they might come into this new life as well. We get not only to live for him now, but we will get to live with him when he comes. And when we see him on that day, we will be filled with the same glory that we see. We'll be transformed into his likeness forever to enjoy him. Now, How does that message get transported from me and you to all the nations of the world? What's Paul's strategy for making sure that this exalted Jesus, who's too large for two hands to hold, 
get spread to all the nations of the world. And I want to suggest to you that there are five things that we see at the end of this letter, Colossians 4, verses 7 to 18, five things that mark the, the sort of apostolic partnership, the apostolic ministry, five things that we want to mark our local churches if we're going to sort of uh, transport and transfer the message of the gospel to the nations. He call these the five D's, if you will, of partnership. Number one is dedication. When we see these list of peoples, we're going to see the, the biographical illustration of dedication. Number two is disappointments. How to deal with disappointments in the work of the ministry, in the Christian church. Number three is devotion. So we're going to see a people who are dedicated to the task of spreading the gospel, who will endure disappointments, but who remain devoted to each other personally. Devotion. Number four, diversity. And number five, direction. Following the direction of the scriptures. Colossians 4, verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Herapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas. Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans. And see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus, See that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. First thing we want to see in this list of uh, partners with Paul is the dedication to the task of spreading the gospel. Uh, We see this in his greeting to several people. Take, for example, verse 7, Tychicus. He was dedicated to the ministry. Notice how Paul describes him. He will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. Tychicus was a comrade in arms, and he's dedicated to the work of the gospel. But not only do we see that with Tychicus, but notice we see that also with Aristarchus. He's dedicated to Paul's team, too. We first learn of Aristarchus in Acts chapter 19. Remember there, Paul is in Ephesus. He's preaching the gospel in Ephesus, and the gospel is falling with such power that people are turning away from idolatry. They're turning away from the cults to which they belong. They're, they're burning books and things from that old way of life. And the revival is so powerful that it begins to affect the economy of the city. And the, and the craftsmen who made their money making the idols that people worship, the false god that people worship, well, they were, they were vexed. They were hot. And so they stirred up a rebellion against Paul and against the Christians. And 
when you read Acts chapter 19, a, a riot breaks out in the whole city. And they're shouting, great is Artemis, and, and great are these uh, idols. And they're dragging two men, Acts 19.29 tells us, into the Colosseum, uh, presumably to, to torture and beat them. And the two men we read of there in Acts 19.29 is Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. What's interesting is, from that point, Aristarchus seems to go everywhere that Paul goes. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm hanging out with dudes and they get me attacked by a mob and dragged into a coliseum and get my life threatened, I'm kind of like deuces. <laughs> I catch you on the other side, you know. But Aristarchus is dedicated to the gospel and, and dedicated to Paul, so much so that in, in, in Colossians 4, verse 10, notice how Paul describes him as his fellow prisoner. The word he uses there in the original has the sense that Aristarchus has volunteered to go to prison with Paul, probably to care for Paul. That's dedication. It's right by the apostle's side. And then we have Epaphras. I love Epaphras. Paul notes Epaphras' dedication in prayer. See it there in verses 12 and 13? Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Herapolis. How many of you know prayer is hard work? That prayer takes dedication. How many of you have bent beside your bed to pray with all good intent and what feels like zeal at the moment? And two minutes in, you notice that the words in your prayer seem to be getting further apart. And then you pop up <laughs> and realize you've fallen asleep in your prayer. Maybe that's just me. Um, it takes dedication, it takes work to subdue the flesh and to pray. And Epaphras is such a guy, he's praying for them. And, and how beautiful is his prayer, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Every team needs prayer warriors like this, who pray with this kind of spiritual purpose. And every team needs men and women like this who are marked by hard work, dedication, working. Notice now, not just for the church in Colossae, but also in Herapolis and Laodicea, who have sort of a kingdom vision for their prayers. Not just a local church vision. And it's, it's likely that Epaphras was the one who founded the church in Colossians. Since the Colossians, uh, early in the chapter in the book, learned the gospel from Epaphras. Now he's all the way in Rome. And Colossae is across the, the known world. And Colossae is not out of sight, out of mind. They are very much in his heart and in his prayer. And he's remembering them before God. That's dedication. One more person that illustrates this kind of dedication. The fellow there named Justice. You see him there? It's the only time that justice is mentioned in the Bible. All we know about him is what's, what says here, Jesus, who's also called Justice. Now, in the first century, the name Jesus was actually very common. And it would be a very common name among Jewish people until relationships between Jewish uh, persons and Christians begin to be strained and changed through sharp contention between those religious communities. Well, what we know about Jesus here is that he's, he's willing to be called justice rather than by his given name, which is probably appropriate. 
because he worships a man named Jesus. There's a kind of humility here, right? Uh, a kind of selflessness. Uh, uh, a man who otherwise is anonymous, apart from this mention. And, and in that anonymity, in that willingness to be anonymous, and in that willingness to, to regard some things like the Lord's name as holy, he illustrates a dedication that we want in our teams. So whether it takes the form of faithful ministry, volunteer imprisonment, anonymity and name changes, Hard work in prayer, no local church, no gospel partnership, no missions-minded team will thrive without dedication. So we must remain dedicated to the call the Lord has placed on our lives to spread the gospel together. We, we must renew our efforts each day so that in the long accumulation of days, we will be found faithful. And that's the thing about dedication and success. It's so daily. It's the little things done over a long period that make us dedicated people, that make us faithful people. So daily, Tychicus was, he did the things that amounted to faithfulness. Daily, daily, Aristarchus was with Paul, even in prison. Daily, Epaphras was on his knees working hard in prayer. Daily, Jesus was happy to be called justice and serve the team in relative obscurity. Do not despise the daily. Dedication is created in the small acts of daily obedience. So think about your membership in this church and your service in this church, with this church, with this family, dedicated to spreading the gospel. Are you dedicated to this partnership, this gospel partnership? Does it show daily in your lives? That's the first D. Notice the second D here is disappointments. We must keep in mind that in the Christian life, not everything will be success. Not everything will be glory and a bed of roses. Gospel partnerships include disappointments too, and we need to be prepared to face them in a gospel way. A couple of people here that were no doubt at one point disappointments to the Apostle Paul. First is this man named Mark. You see him mentioned there in verse 10. He's the cousin of Barnabas, the, the son of encouragement. If you're familiar with the book of Acts and the early days of, of Paul's ministry with Barnabas, you'll recall that there was a, a sharp dispute between Paul and Barnabas about this very person. Uh, Acts chapter 13 says that Paul and his companions set sail for Paphos, and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And then it says this, John, same guy, John Mark, John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Just out of the blue. He, he lands, he gets off the boat, and he says, I'm, I'm going back. And he, and he departs. Later in Acts chapter 15, verses 36 to 41, that's where we find the dispute that breaks out between Paul and Barnabas. Paul and Barnabas had been boys since Paul was converted. It was Barnabas who had gone to find Paul and to bring him to the church in Jerusalem and to vouch for Paul that he was converted, that he did preach Christ in the synagogues, and that, and that the apostles should welcome him into the church. And, and then in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 and 2, the Holy Spirit says to the church, separate Paul and Barnabas from me for the work of the ministry. And the first missionary team in the book of Acts is laid hands on by the church and sent out. And so Paul and Barnabas has been thick as thieves from day one. But in Acts 15, 
all of that brotherhood, all that fellowship in the gospel, all of that history of working together, suffering together, and so on, all of that was torn apart over this guy, John Mark. Barnabas wanted him to travel with him again. Paul said no. They went their different ways. And, And that disappointment, no doubt, lingered in Paul and in Barnabas for some time. But there's another person here who sort of speaks to us of disappointment. It's a guy here named Demas. You see him there mentioned in verse 14. Demas was also a part of Paul's missionary team at one point. He shows up in a lot of places in Paul's missionary letters. It's interesting to compare John Mark to Demas. Because 15 years later now, with the writing of Colossians, Paul is saying of John Mark, hey, listen, if he comes to you, receive him. He's fruitful for ministry. There's something that's happened over that 15 years where Paul's attitude and heart has changed toward Mark, and perhaps Mark has gone from being a disappointment to, to being a dedicated servant of the gospel. There's been a kind of restoration that happens there, but, but Demas travels the other direction. Mark started poorly and finished well. Demas started well and failed to finish. Next time we hear of Demas is in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Paul writes these words, For Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What sadness must have been in the apostle's heart as he penned those words. Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. What a blow it must have been to have traveled with someone who preached with you and served with you and to see him turn back to the world and depart the gospel. If you're a Christian for any length of time, chances are you're going to know someone and love them deeply as Christians and you're going to see them turn from the truth and turn to the world. Such disappointments are unfortunately common. How do we handle these things? How do we think about these things? As we're seeking to spread the gospel, well, I think there are three things we might take note of just, just by the illustrations of, of Demas and Mark. First, we cannot take for granted that we will finish our race. We must persevere until the end. I suspect that Demas at some point was surprised in himself that he had gone from working at the apostle's side to loving the world. How he had gone from working at the apostle's side to loving the world must have involved becoming cozy with the world and forgetting that he was in a war with the world. We won't coast into heaven. We must take it by force. We must travel the narrow way, not the wide way that leads to destruction. We cannot take that for granted. But secondly, we must recognize that not everyone who starts to race with us will in fact finish with us. These disappointments in the ministry in the church are, again, a part of the Christian life. There's no way to avoid them unless you completely avoid people, in which case you are the disappointment. The third, notice here, the gospel restores and the gospel overcomes disappointment. 
We may have to wait for a while, even a long while. There's 15 years between when John Mark leaves the team in Acts chapter 13 and when Paul writes this letter uh, demonstrating that he's usefulness. It's been 15 years that have transpired there. It may take a while, but, but some things like disappointment are indeed healed by the gospel, by the grace of our Lord, by the grace of forgiveness and confession and reconciliation. We need to not be caught off guard by disappointments in the Christian life and in the Christian church. At some point, someone in your church family, if they haven't already, will disappoint you, even hurt you. But it's a remarkable thing. You know what God uses to heal church hurts? He uses the church. Persevere. Endure. Practice the disciplines of the gospel, confession, repentance, forgiveness, reconciliation. And our disappointments will be eclipsed by God's grace. See, because of the gospel, not every desertion is final. We have to do this work while taking a long view, especially of people. We have to suffer disappointment without giving up. Our partnership must include in it the terms and conditions of, of reconciliation, as we see here between Paul and John Mark. Indeed, God has given us the ministry of reconciliation, has he not? So we ought to be those ambassadors of reconciliation in the church and calling those in the world to be reconciled to God. So ask yourself this question, maybe meditate on it this afternoon. How do I handle disappointment? Do I handle it as if the gospel is real and at work? Or do I really not handle it at all? We'll have to deal with disappointments. But number three, the third D here, we want to go on to demonstrate devotion. Devotion to people, to the team, to the church, to God's people. And we see this devotion in two compelling examples in the list. First, there's Onesimus mentioned in verse 9. This is the same Onesimus mentioned in Paul's letter to Philemon. You know that letter? He was a runaway slave from his owner, Philemon, who bumped into Paul. And everybody who bumped into Paul seemed to get the gospel. And Onesimus became a a Christian and lived next to Paul and served Paul in his imprisonment. Became useful to Paul. Now Paul is is returned Onesimus to Philemon. Now I, I really wish I could see how that conversation went. You've got this runaway slave who bumps into Paul in jail and Paul tells him of this Jesus who was crucified for his sins and resurrected and offers eternal life and God does a miracle and Onesimus believes. And Onesimus stays with Paul learning about various things and learning how to live as a Christian and, and one day Paul says, hey, uh, I want you to do me a favor. And Onesimus is like, cool, well, you know, what is it? He says, I got this letter I want you to deliver. He said, I bet, you know, maybe he even feels honored that he gets to carry a letter from the apostle. And uh, Onesimus says, well, where do you want me to take the letter? Uh, Paul says, I need you to deliver this letter to Philemon. And Onesimus like, which Philemon? <laughs> and he's like, Philemon, you're you going to go with Tychicus through Colossae, and I want you to take this back to your Philemon. Onesimus like, my Philemon? <laughs> See, at this point, I know he's saved, because, again, if it had been me, I'd be like, no, nah, no. Nah. <laughs> We're going to have to send that UPS. But Onesimus carries this letter. And and in carrying this letter, he proves his devotion. He proves, number one, 
his devotion to the Lord and his gospel. Uh, the gospel has been working this change in Onesimus' life that he goes back to be accountable even to a slave owner in the name of the Lord. N- number two, it, it proves his devotion to the apostle and to Paul's guidance in his life. He, he has trusted Paul to teach him the gospel. Now he's trusting Paul to teach him how to walk it out in hard things. But number three, he's, he's devoted to the church and its unified witness. He goes back for the sake of unity with his brother. And, and, and in doing so, he proves, number four, his devotion to Philemon and, and his devotion and trust of Philemon's good judgment as a brother in the Lord. How many of us for the lordship of Christ, the integrity of the gospel, for personal integrity and the unity of the church and the affection even of slave owners would voluntarily go back to possible slavery? That requires devotion. And then we also see in verse 14 where Paul mentions Luke, the beloved physician. Luke was a long-term member of Paul's team. He was not only a doctor on the team, but also the team historian. It's Luke who writes the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. He probably writes that two-volume history as a, as a defense of Paul in his, in his trial. He seems to go almost everywhere that, that Paul goes, right? By Paul's side, devoted to Paul. Think about how rare a physician might have been in the ancient world. How lucrative a medical career he, he may have given up. But Luke gave that up to help Paul and to help spread the gospel. And Paul probably kept Luke pretty busy too, didn't he? Three times he's been whipped by his Jewish brethren. He seems to keep getting in shipwrecks. He's been beaten and left for dead outside the city. And instead of going on to the next city, he goes back into the city. He's talking about the, 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 the thorn in the flesh or the problem with his eyesight. Dr. Luke was probably pretty busy caring for Paul. And even now, Paul's in jail, which isn't three hots in a cot. In the ancient world, it's a deep hole and hope that someone brings you a meal. And through it all, good old Dr. Luke is right there. And all our struggles with health care today, it would be nice if every church had a Dr. Luke, wouldn't it? So what I, what I simply wish to highlight here is that gospel partnerships or local churches are best formed and enjoyed where there's genuine personal devotion among the people. There's genuine loyalty and warmth in the family of God and on the ministry teams. That these partnerships to spread the gospel are not contractual relationships. They're not business relationships. They should have all the warmth of a family and of mom and pop uh, arrangements, brothers and sisters in arms together. You'll know a healthy church when you see one. It will be focused on the task of spreading the gospel with all the warmth of true friendship. Beloved, that's sometimes rare to find. But such devotion is sweet. And even if it's hard, it repays. It's a mess worth making. It ought to be prayed for and cultivated. If you enjoy warmth in your friendships here in the church, if you enjoy warmth in your ministry teams here, and I trust you do, do not take it for granted. Encourage it. Protect it. Stimulate it further. Be thankful for it. And express gratitude. Which brings us to our fourth D. 
spread the gospel around the world is going to require not only dedication to the task, the ability to deal with disappointments and devotion to one another, but it's going to require diversity. It's going to require diversity. That's what we see in verses 12 and 13. Verse 12, Paul mentions his Jewish partners there. You see, he says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. In verse 13, Paul says of Epaphras that, he says that Epaphras is one of you, meaning that Epaphras now is not Jewish, but a a Colossian, a Gentile. That was also true of Onesimus in verse 9. So Paul had on his team both Jew and Gentile in Christ. He intentionally built a team that reflected the diversity of the body of Christ and the missionary aim of Christ in the church. But not only men, notice in verse 15, Paul mentions Nympha, a woman patron of a house church. There's a church that meets in her home. She's probably a a wealthier person who sponsors that church and supplies for that church. So he has women in view as well. She's in the the sort of line of women that go back to Luke chapter 8, verses 1 to 3, where you had those women who supported the work of the Lord Jesus as well. It wasn't simply that Paul himself, as he says in 1 Corinthians 9, became all things to all people. He also involved all people to do all things. See, a healthy gospel partnership will have some measure of class, ethnic, and cultural diversity. It will include both men and women, just as men and women are engaged and included in the kingdom of God. You, you saw a sweet model of it even in the prayer time this morning. Our brother Joey invites our brother and our sister up to, to pray, to share in that time reflects this same kind of of diversity and partnership in the work of the ministry. People often ask me, as if I know, (laughs) what things they can do to diversify their church. They see the power and the promise of diversity, but they wonder how to practice it. Looking at Paul over the years, my my answer has become this. I'm going to give it to you a couple times. Write it down if you like. That genuine diversity only comes with radical sacrifice of personal privilege in order to fully embrace as equals the most spiritually alienated and marginalized people. A genuine diversity only comes with radical sacrifice of personal privilege in order to fully embrace as equals those people who are most spiritually alienated and marginalized in our communities. Put it to you a different way. You gotta hug the margins if you want to diversify the center. If the people in the middle care nothing about or do little to include the people on the edges, you can't hope to be really inclusive and diverse. Not as we see here in Paul's team. Now, where do I get this principle from? Well, I think it's hinted at when Paul says, these are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers. Only three men. Of all of Judaism, he only has three Jewish comrades in the gospel. In that sentence is so much radical sacrifice of privilege and personal cost pain. Sinclair Ferguson says he believes that this is an indication that Paul was disowned by his family as well as the the sort of Jewish people at large. And I think if we think about two biographical scenes in Paul's life, you'll see what I mean by this principle. Think about Paul's conversion 
And think about how Paul served the Gentiles. You remember Paul's conversion in Acts chapter 9? Paul had been um, traveling to Damascus with with papers from the Jewish authorities to arrest anyone that he found that was a follower of the way, male and female. He's just arresting Christians indiscriminately. He had stood by at the end of Acts chapter 7, holding the clothes of those who had stoned and and killed Stephen. Paul now describes himself before Christ as Hebrew of Hebrews. He describes himself as zealous for the law as a Pharisee, excelling all of his peers in zeal for Judaism. Now, he met Jesus. And all of that got turned on its head. And all of the status that he had as a, as a Pharisee, all of the status as he had as a student of Gamaliel, all of the status that he had as someone who could go to the high priest and get marching orders to persecute, all of that was lost for the sake of following Jesus. And isn't this what Paul tells us in Philippians? That he counted all his loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus, his Lord. His conversion cost him his privilege inside of Judaism. But now notice the second thing in terms of Paul and the Gentiles. Paul wasn't cut off from his people solely because he followed Jesus. He was cut off from his people because he followed Jesus and he sought to bring Gentiles into the kingdom. Seeking the conversion of Gentiles made Paul unclean and a lawbreaker in the eyes of his own people. Paul's Jewish community did not understand or accept Paul's radical acceptance and gospel embrace of those Gentile outsiders. Paul sacrificed everything to see the gospel go to everyone. And it was a heavy loss. Now, it's interesting. Now, when Paul comes into Christianity now, he, he loses his privilege on the one hand in the Jewish world, but now he's a, he's a unique apostle inside the church, and he has privilege now by that position as an apostle. And the question is, what did he do with that privilege? Well, he used it to make sure those on the margins were included in the center of the life of the church. So he sacrificed his privilege to follow Jesus. And then in Christ, he used his privilege to include others. We see that in Galatians chapter 2, don't we? When Paul says there that he had to rebuke Peter to his face. Because Peter, Galatians 2 around verse 14, was not walking in step with the gospel. Why? Paul explained. Because before certain Jewish Christians from Jerusalem came, Peter was in Galatia hanging out with all the Gentiles, eating pork chop sandwiches, going to barbecues. I mean, Peter Peter was just kicking it with the crew. And then these Jewish Christians came with this regard for the law, and Peter stepped back from them, acting as if he didn't know them. This the Gentiles. And Paul said, I had to rebuke him to his face because in that way, he was acting contrary to this gospel, which includes people from all nations into a new family in Christ. And so he used his apostolic privilege to argue for the inclusion of the marginalized. That, beloved, I think, is what it takes to have deep, lasting, genuine, Diversity. 
in which the diversity is not tokenism, but really is inclusion. Where people are brought from the margins into the middle and share together in the life of Christ. And so the question becomes, what about us? How, how Pauline is our lives? How, how much does our life map over Paul's? All of us will have privilege or a loss of privilege in various relationships, various circumstances. How are we using those blessings in order to include others? And who in your community is most marginalized? Let me tell you who it is in, in my community, in Anacostia in Southeast DC. We lag behind the rest of the city in almost every social and economic indicator. And so it's, it's going to be the poor among us. And not just the poor, it's going to be black women among us. Right, who are largely leading seven out of ten homes by themselves, raising families by themselves, and even inside churches are often viewed as the less desirable marriage prospect, are often overlooked for leadership in churches. They're almost invisible, they tell me, inside of diverse spaces. And not just black women, but people with disabilities. When's the last time you imagined having an elder who has a disability? There are all kinds of people around us, on the margins, alienated. I think the kingdom would sensitize us to recognize them. And not just recognize them, but to reach out to them. Not just reach out to them, but to bring them into the middle of our fellowships. And not just bring them into the middle of our fellowships, but where there's godly character and qualification to submit to their leadership. That's what it takes to have an enduring, lasting diversity that isn't upset and torn apart by the next election or the next news cycle. But that reflects the glory and grace of God in the kingdom. To get there, let me give you the final D. It's direction. We have to take God's direction. We must follow his word, in other words. Paul instructs the Colossians to read this letter in their church, verses 16 to 18, and to read the letter written to the Laodiceans. The word of God is meant to spread to all the churches of God, and in this way, all the churches have the same faith and the same instruction in the faith. The Lord intends us to carry out his directions by By obeying our calling. So Paul puts Archippus on blast right there. For the whole church, he writes, Tell Archippus, I said, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. That poor brother. He's sitting there there listening to the letter with everybody else. We've been going through four chapters. Paul is like greeting everybody and giving everybody their respects, their propers. And they're like, oh, and tell Archippus. I said, do what you're supposed to be doing. That's the Ebonics version. (laughs) And you know, for the rest of that brother's life, he can't ever give an excuse for not serving in ministry. You know, he's serving on the usher team. He's serving on the sound team. He's serving in children's ministry. He out parking cars at the service. Because everybody who know Archippus and know this letter, like you heard what Paul said. (laughs) We need help in children's ministry. Fulfill your ministry, brother. (laughs) <laughs> Poor fellow. <laughs> but what's said of Archippus applies to us too, doesn't it? The Lord has given each of us a service to do in our partnership in the gospel, in our fellowship in the church. 
By his spirit, he's given each of us spiritual gifts that are meant to edify the entire body. And so it's incumbent upon each of us to see to it that we fulfill our ministries. Uh, we should follow the direction of the Lord and his word and, and from his leaders. And we should find those places where perhaps people seem to be built up and edified by something that we do, some way that we serve, that probably we think nothing of, but that really blesses people. That's a pretty good clue to your, to your giftedness, I think. You know, and we should find those areas where we seem to be bearing fruit and bear more fruit. And not just those areas. We should see just areas of need where we don't feel particularly gifted, but we do feel willing. And serve in those areas of need. Fulfill your ministry, beloved, and the gospel will go forward in great power. Is that your resolve? Are you committed to following the path the Lord Jesus has commanded you to walk? I pray and trust you are. I pray that I am. I pray that together as one family partnership formed by the gospel to spread the gospel, we'll see the glory of the Lord fill our lives and fill our communities. Because at bottom, I can't think of anything else that's going to transform the neighborhood I live in. Builders will come in and build new buildings, but they won't build new people. Money will come in and change the economic status of people, but they won't change the spiritual status of people. There will be all kinds of organizations, as there are, who offer family support and help with children and things of that sort, but none of them will make them children of God and members of the household of God. Don't lose sight of the fact that what we do in spreading the gospel and representing Jesus changes both time and eternity. And transforms things that human institutions and human strategies cannot reach. Now we know the gospel is foolishness to the world. We know it looks like weakness to the world. But for those of us who believe it is the power of God and the wisdom of God that indeed changes people into the people of God. So in all of our doing, in all of our service, let it be animated by, driven by, aimed at spreading the good news that Jesus Christ has come into the world and died for sinners and God has raised him from the grave three days later and everyone who believes in him is forgiven, born again, transformed into the likeness of Christ and will be glorified together with Christ on that day that he comes. And that's good news whether or not my neighborhood changes at all. So we're grateful for your prayers and for your partnership. We're on the same team, and we're looking forward to seeing Christ take this city as he teaches us to be dedicated to each other, devoted to the task, handle disappointments with the gospel, grow in diversity as he adds it to our churches, and as we are directed by his word, may he give us grace. Let's pray together. Indeed, Lord, we love you and we praise you because you first loved us. We, we were nothing that you should love. We did not deserve your affection. We can make no claim on your salvation. We were utterly lost, unable and unwilling to come to you. But by your grace in the gospel of your Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, you raised us from death to life, and you gave us eyes to see Jesus the way he really is full of beauty and glory and grace and truth. 
and to see him as our Savior. And you called us to him, and we are thankful. And we pray, O Lord, help us now to lock arms together that we might make Jesus known to our family members, our co-workers, our neighbors, that we might make him known throughout this city and from this city to the four corners of the globe so that you might be praised by all nations and worshiped truly for the one true and living God. Do this for your glory and for our joy. Bless Restoration Church and, and continue to perform the miracle that you've done here. Add to her number. Grow her in power, spiritual power. And uh, Lord, make your name great, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.